During this month of January, I'm addressing you on a series of subjects pertaining to the life and ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ, and particularly our own congregation. Last Lord's Day, I was led to speak to you about the conduct of the church and our own conduct with respect to it. And this morning, I'd like to speak to you about church leaders. Next Lord's Day, uh, church finances. Please turn in your Bibles for our scripture reading this morning in the Old Testament to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, where we'll take as our reading the first eight verses. Isaiah 6 at the first verse, hear God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Our reading in the New Testament this morning is found in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, verses 1 to 13. 1 Timothy 3, beginning at the first verse. Here again God's word. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing 
and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And thus far the reading of God's word. Wouldn't this be a strange ad? Pay attention to this. This is like something you might read in the Wanted column, okay? Wanted. Men who will give up large portions of their free time to place themselves anytime and repeatedly in the humble service of others, often in awkward and unpleasant circumstances with little appreciation or even awareness given to their efforts, knowing that they will constantly fall short of people's expectations, rarely have their accomplishments or sacrifices acknowledged, become the most obvious targets of criticism in the church and of persecution from the world. Men who will perform a variety of tasks from menial to spiritual, who will need to study harder than others and pray longer, men who will daily bear the burdens and worries of the church which others do not know, men who will watch for souls and care for bodily needs from washing feet to mending hearts, knowing that they will have a greater accountability for what they do before God's judgment, men who will do these things as self-starters without discouragement or growing weary, maintaining personal purity and sanctification regardless of strain or temptation, giving up privileges and freedoms enjoyed by others around them, and all of this for no remuneration or something far below minimum wage. That would be a really strange ad, wouldn't it? But you know, stranger still would be the very next line of the ad if we were to write it from a biblical perspective. Not all applicants may qualify to be chosen for this burden and liability. And so we might find a 20th century rendition of what the New Testament teaches us about the qualifications for church office. Sometimes when you look at what officers in the church do, if you really knew what went on behind the scenes and what they had to endure and the kind of people they must be, you would say, well, who wants this job? It's a very good question, but the church needs people who pursue church office. The church needs people who will be elders and deacons. And Paul, speaking to Timothy about the conduct of the Ephesian congregation, says, Timothy, as difficult a task as this is, you need to realize that not everyone qualifies to be an elder or a deacon. The kind of people that the Lord Jesus Christ would set apart to these offices are then described. And in a sense, we have a long list of virtues that are uh, very common to the method of ethical exhortation in the Greek world. Hellenistic literature is full of such things. You find them in the Greek philosophers. You find them in the Greek orators. You find them in the New Testament long list of virtues, personal qualities that are needed for some task or uh, personal qualities that are needed in order to be ethical, to be good people. And now Paul lays down for Timothy the kinds of virtues that should be found in an individual who would be an elder or an overseer in the congregation, the kinds of virtues and qualities that would be found in a deacon in the congregation. My lecture is not this morning addressed to the functions of these various offices. I'm trusting that in this church we're pretty familiar with those terms. 
You know that the elders are those that are shepherds. They oversee the life of the congregation, its discipline, its worship, so forth. The deacons are there to support the elders in their tasks, to make sure that they have time to pay attention to the word of God in prayer, their main calling. The deacons uh, tend to a number of things, the ministry of mercy in the congregation, things having to do with the physical holdings of the church, uh, offerings, and just about anything else that would help the elders to perform their tasks. The deacons also minister to people, especially in their needs. Who should be an elder? Who should be a deacon? Who wants to be? Well, Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 3 a couple of motivations for these offices because even in the early days of the church, even when there are people who sometimes blindly and naively aspire to these offices and desire them, Paul realized that there was a great strain upon people that would serve. He realized that, um, that there would be, in some sense, disincentives for being officers and leaders in the church. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Now this is a trustworthy saying. Some commentators have trouble with this, and I need to explain to you why. I won't take a long time doing it, but it's really insightful. They have trouble here because when Paul writes to Timothy here in 1 Timothy, he on a number of uh, occasions or in a number of places says, this is a faithful saying, or this is a trustworthy axiom. And usually when Paul does that, he's stopping to red flag something really important of theological value. It's a trustworthy saying, it's a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into this world to die for sinners, of whom I'm the chief, Paul says. So there you see a very weighty theological truth being flagged with this introductory formula. This is a faithful saying. You've heard this, you can count on this, you should receive this as true. Now, the reason some commentators have trouble here is because Paul now uses one of those red flag expressions, this is a faithful saying, then he goes on to talk about something which we don't think is very important, aspiring to the office of elder. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he's desiring a noble task, a dignified vocation. Why does Paul bother to do that? He needs to make it clear that for all of the abuse, for all of the weariness, for all of the persecution, for all of the strain and temptation that goes with this, he says this is a worthy calling. This is a noble task. This is a vocation that has dignity in the eyes of God. And so there is a motivation to answer the ad that I facetiously drew up at the beginning of this morning's sermon. There is a motivation for people who have those qualities and have the gifts of office to say, I'll undergo that. Because God says, listen, this is trustworthy, this is true, this is a faithful saying. The office and task of overseer carries great respect. And I don't believe here that he's referring to respect in the eyes of men, because that would probably be a false statement. It doesn't carry a lot of respect in the eyes of men often, but it does in the eyes of God. Before God, this is a noble calling. And with respect to deacons, he says in verse 13 that they have a motivation to answer the ad at the beginning of this morning's message too. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing, again, in the eyes of God and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Serve as a deacon 
Deacons, of course, are table waiters. Deacons are servants of others. They minister to the needs of the saints. And those who do that well gain an excellent standing in the eyes of God and also great boldness and assurance in their faith. You might find that kind of uh, ironic, maybe a bit paradoxical. Those who humble themselves gain boldness. Those who serve others find that they, before God, have greater confidence. So there are motivations for these offices. And then Paul lays down the qualifications for these offices as well. Ordinarily, the Hellenistic list of virtues that we find outside of the Bible are not organized. That is to say, there's no obvious system or reason for going from one to another. And we find the same kind of lack of a system or order in this list given by Paul. Although many people dealing with the text work long and hard, and I think over hard, to try to organize some kind of an outline, I'm not convinced by any of them. And I'm simply going to do what Paul did and go through this list in order uh, without trying to uh, get subdivisions, things like that. I'm also going to combine the two lists. Now, initially, you might say, now, but now, Dr. Bonson, if there's a list for elders and a list for deacons, you really can't combine them because those are different offices. Well, remember that Paul's not trying to be systematic. Paul is no more touching on everything that must be true of an elder or a deacon here uh, in this passage than he is touching on every Christian virtue when he gives the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit are the works of the flesh in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Uh, we know that he's not being complete in the list because if you turn to Titus 1, where he gives another list, of qualifications for office for elder and deacon you will find of course many things that overlap but also things are said in Titus 1 that are not said here some things are said here that are not said in Titus 1 did Paul change his mind no I think Paul just brought down the emphasis on certain things when he wrote to Timothy and emphasized certain things when he wrote to Titus it's not illegitimate to combine these lists certainly we wouldn't want to say that what Paul is getting at is there's only certain virtues an elder should have, and the ones that are not mentioned about elders, that are mentioned about deacons, elders shouldn't have those virtues. You see how preposterous that would be? Accordingly, I'm going to save you some time. I will not try to outline this, and I will not try to go through two different lists. I'm going to combine the list and tell you the kinds of people, the kind of people that qualify for leadership in the Christian congregation. The first thing Paul tells us in his list is that they must be above reproach, verse 2. Now the overseer must be above reproach. In verse 10 he says uh, about deacons, they must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, if they are blameless, let them serve as deacons. The first and the most indispensable thing that Paul says about church officers is they must be of good report. They must not be the sorts of men that you say, oh yeah, but there's all these sorts of things against them when you contemplate their life and their character. They must be the sort of people you say, well, you know, I can give pretty categorically a good report of these people. They're above reproach. They are blameless. No obvious defect comes to mind of a moral or spiritual nature when you think of these individuals. Paul goes on to say, uh, using the list of uh, elders' qualifications, that they must not only be above reproach, but uh, the elder must be, or the overseer must be, the husband of one wife, of but one wife. Now, if you have questions during our Sunday school time, I'll be glad to take them. Let me just say very briefly here, this is not a requirement that elders be married. Some have tried to read it that way. 
And uh, it no more requires that men be married and then show that they have only one wife than it requires when it says that they are not given to drunkenness, that they drink often, but not to the point of drunkenness. The point is, if they drink, they must not be drunkards. And if they are married, they must not be polygamists. They must have but one wife. And that's true of uh, deacons as well. Verse 12, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children, etc. Sometimes in the heathen world from which Christian converts came, people would come into the church, however, with um, multiple marriages. Polygamists were converted, and we praise God for that. But what Paul says is, no converted polygamist qualifies to be an overseer or a deacon in the church. The question sometimes arises, what happens to those who, um, who divorce and then remarry? In the early days of the church, this was quite a controversy, and some of the church fathers argued that anyone who remarried after divorce could not be an officer in the church, because then that person had two wives. Well, that's not what Paul is referring to. Obviously, there are some people who have, uh, uh, sadly, their wives die. They're widowers, and then they remarry. And uh, the early church was not willing to apply it to that situation, and rightly so, because what Paul is talking about here is being married to but one woman at a time. Now, those who are illegally and unbiblically divorced don't qualify because they are guilty of unrepentant sin. There's no question about that. But those who are biblically divorced are those who lose their wife through death and then remarry are not in violation of this provision. One wife at a time, covenantally, biblically married and living in purity with that woman. And um, uh, the, the group then that's being excluded, as I've said, are those that are not practicing monogamy. Next, Paul tells us that the overseers and the deacons uh, must be temperate, verse 2. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. Actually, this word respectable in the NIV translation that I've used this morning uh, is translated in other versions as grave or orderly or worthy of respect. All of these English translations giving the same sense of someone who is well-behaved. The person that would rule in the church and oversee the spiritual affairs of others must be someone who is well-behaved, someone who controls himself, someone who is of temperate disposition. In verse 8, Paul adds with respect to deacons, although I, as I've already said, I think it would apply to all officers, with respect to deacons, they must be sincere, is what the NIV translates. The Greek is really um, graphic. They must not be double-tongued individuals, people who, as we would say, talk out of both sides of their mouths. They must be people that you can count on, not to say one thing to one person and then something to someone else. Now, why do you figure that is? Because I assure you that the temptation is great, not only in general Christian living, for us to be hypocrites, to say what is needful for the moment to get us by. But if you're an officer because of the pressures that are put on you and the confrontation that you sometimes must bring to people and the disputes that you must sometimes resolve between people, it is very easy to say one thing to one group of people and then another thing to another. 
That kind of person is not worthy of office and leadership in the congregation. They must not be double-tongued. They must be sincere. Not only that, they must be loving and hospitable people. In verse 2, respectable, hospitable. Those who would be your leaders are those that are willing to have you in their homes. Those who are not so proud as they cannot open their front door to you. Those who are willing to sit at the table with you and to feed you and to care for you and show some kind of social familiarity and intimacy beyond just, hi, how are you doing on Sunday morning? They must be hospitable people. And then in verse 2, Paul adds, they must be able to teach, or if you will, competent in teaching. I'm not going to expound Titus 1 this morning as well, but at this one place I'd like you to look at Titus 1, verse 9, to understand that a person who is competent to teach according to the New Testament is not just somebody that has the gift of gab, not just somebody who is able to stand up in front of people and to give a lesson. It's not just speaking ability that we're referring to here. Competent to teach also means competent to teach the right things. Someone who knows the truth. And so Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Competent to teach means not only does he have the gift of instruction, but he also knows what to instruct people. He knows sound, true doctrine. And that's interesting because we tend to associate that with the office of elder. We should expect our elders to be theologically competent and also able to instruct us. But this is something that is true of deacons as well, according to verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths, or if you will in Greek, the mystery, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacons must be theologically competent too. And that's why when uh, men are nominated to office in our congregation, uh, the session examines them, whether they are elders or deacons, and they examine them as to their theological convictions and to their holding to our confession of faith. Because Paul tells us that the men who would lead the church must know the truth and be able to expound it. In verses 3 and 8, we read further that those who would be officers in the church must have self-control with respect to their drinking, not given to drunkenness, as verse 3 says. Uh, those who don't indulge in much wine, according to verse 8. Once again, we notice the balance that is taught in Christian ethics in the New Testament. They are not to be teetotalers. We are not told that it's wrong for them to drink. We are told it's wrong for them not to exercise self-control, for them to be given to drunkenness, to be indulging in a lot of wine, to not show some kind of restraint in this area. Not only must they show restraint with respect to drinking, they must show restraint with respect to their anger. They must be people who are not violent but gentle, as verse 3 says. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle individuals, people who show consideration and kindness, who can exercise patience, even under stress. Verse 3 adds, and they must not be quarrelsome. Not only are they not the sort of people who are easily getting into fist fights, but they're not the sorts of people that go around looking for an argument. 
I've been in congregations where I think people have made the mistake of looking for the individual who wants to talk about theology all the time and thinking that that in itself makes this person worthy of office. But often those who kind of get on a theological trip, as it were, are people that love to quarrel. They love to engage in argumentation. And sometimes they love to argue for argument's sake. The Bible says, be careful of such individuals. They may be competent to teach, and they may know their theology, but if they're quarrelsome individuals, then they can't lead the church of Jesus Christ. Moreover, they have to show restraint with respect to money. Drinking, patience, quarrelsomeness, and also in their monetary pursuits. Paul puts it very simply in verse 3, they must not be lovers of money. With respect to deacons, I think it's interesting the turn of expression as he changes it. Deacons must not be people pursuing dishonest gain, or as one translation puts it, greedy of filthy lucre. Because deacons handle the finances of the church. And you don't want to put someone in charge of the finances that has an avaricious heart any more than you want to put a fox in charge of the chicken coop, right? And so look at the people that you're going to put into office and ask yourself, are they materialistic? Are they greedy? Are they selfish individuals? Do they show self-control in this area of their lives? And how about their family life, verses 4 and 5? He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Paul appeals to kind of a commonsensical argument and an a fortiori argument that is reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He says if a man can't take care of just his own household, how is he now going to take care of the larger household of God? And so examine him with respect to his drinking habits. Examine him with respect to whether he gets into fights with people or whether he is an argumentative kind of individual. Examine him with respect to his use of money and examine him in his family life. What kind of a husband is he? What kind of father is he? This is true of deacons even as it is true of elders. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Uh, and that's not the verse I wanted. It should be verse um, 12, pardon me. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Now, people sometimes ask, what, what kind of expectation then are we to have of those who would rule in the house of God? What must their houses look like? Paul describes them. Children must be respectful children. They must be faithful and under control. Does this mean they must be believers? This is a controversial point. It's been argued in the church. But I think that in any Reformed church, it ought to be rather obvious that since we know that faith is a gift from God and regeneration is not something that parents do, they generate children, they don't regenerate children, that consequently you can't hold it as a qualification for office that the children of your officers all be believers, professing faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, you would hold it as a qualification that they instruct their children in the holy truths of our faith that they pray for their children, and they counsel their children, and their children are kept under discipline, that their children come to church regularly, and that they are not in rebellion against the faith. But whether the heart will be softened and a heart of faith will be there is not something under the control of the parents. 
And consequently, I don't read the text that way. What Paul says, the children must show respect for their father. Even if they don't always agree, even if they disagree religiously, they must show respect. And if officers in the church cannot give faith to their children, they cannot give faith to their wives either. But they should be good husbands and faithful husbands, compassionate and charitable and forgiving husbands. And they should care for the spiritual well-being of their wives as their children. Paul says, if you see that in a man who can manage his home, then you can trust him to manage the church of Jesus Christ. Paul does not lay down a requirement as to the consequences. He lays down a requirement with respect to the attitude and the obedience of the person who would serve an office in the church. In verse 6, he adds that our officers, especially our elders, should not be recent converts, or as some will have in their translation, those that are novices. He must not be a recent convert because he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. This tells us something about the fall of Satan, that pride was involved, conceit was involved in the fall of Satan. And Paul says that it is really unwise to put anyone in a situation where conceit might grab hold of them. And he says you will do that if you take someone who is new to the faith. The person that would serve in the congregation must be mature, must be someone who's been a believer for a while, not someone who's going to get kind of you know, caught up and be kind of heady about this, that, well, I've only been a Christian a year or two, and I'm already a leader. Well, that kind of attitude, you see, is something that makes someone unworthy of being a leader. And the temptation is so great that we ought not to place it upon anybody, no matter how promising their lives may look after their conversion. Verse 7 tells us, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The devil's trap, you know all about that. I mean, we have perfect illustration over the last year or two with the tele-evangelists that have fallen into sin. You see, Paul does not, I think, Paul does not here require that your Christianity be the kind of um, meek and mild and wishy-washy and mealy-mouthed thing that no one would ever be offended by your Christianity so that all those who are outside the church who know you say, well, they've got a good report about you. No, I mean, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There will be ridicule. There will be rejection. Paul is not trying to undo that dynamic. He wouldn't undo that dynamic. The world hates those who are in the church and hates what we stand for. But I do think he's talking about the snare of the devil in this sense. That what the world really likes to jump on is that, well, they say one thing and they do another. And that, of course, is the scandal, isn't it, of these tele-evangelists who preach one way and then their own lives are so shameful and so degraded in contrast to their preaching. You know, sometimes even those who are in the world who have the most hardened and bitter attitudes about the faith can say of individuals, well, I don't like what he says, but I can say this, he tries to live by it. I don't like the way he's living, but it's consistent with his profession. And I think Paul is really talking about that kind of thing. Having a good reputation with outsiders doesn't mean that they won't ridicule your faith, but it means they won't say, oh, yeah, well, this is what he says about his faith and this is what he does. And one last thing here in verse 10, 
We are told especially about the deacons that they are first to be tested or proved. I could give you an entire lesson this morning just on this one requirement and how churches do not follow it. The mentality in so many churches is to see someone that they think might have the qualities for office, to see somebody who they think might fit in or they could make use of, and then what they do is they put him in office in hopes that he will follow through. That's the very opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says you see someone who's functioning like an officer, someone that you have, in a sense, tested. You've proven his quality, his gifts, his character, and then you put him in office. Office is not a testing time. Office is the proof of the test. And so when we get ready to ordain an elder or to ordain deacons in our congregation, we should say of them, we've seen these men, we know they have these qualities, we know they have this ministry, and so what we are doing is just confirming what God has already done in their lives. We as a congregation are saying amen to God's work in the life or lives of these people. We are not kind of like in a turkey shoot here. We're not just kind of grabbing, you know, in the dark and saying, well, maybe this guy or maybe this guy. No, let them first be tested. Let them show their qualities. Let this be known. And then the congregation says, amen. So be it. It's confirmed. And what do we learn from this long list of virtues? Well, three things I want to tell you that we learned from this. First, Christ cares about the management of his church and how his church is managed. He cares very much about it, or he wouldn't bother to put in an entire chapter here, and also in Titus, into the Holy Word of God telling us the kinds of people that should govern us and lead us in the church. The way the church is managed is not a matter of indifference to the Lord Jesus Christ. It appalls me that so many churches, when they get ready to make decisions, to have their, uh, their leadership or their procedures set up, just kind of get together and say, now, what sounds good to you? What do you think we ought to do? What will be successful in terms of secular terms? Christ has spoken to this, and he's spoken at length about this. And we must pay attention to this if we are going to be submissive to him as the Lord of the church. This is not something about which we have been left to our own devices. We don't make up qualifications for office. We shouldn't sit around saying, well, now what seems good to me about this? We should go to the Bible and say, this is what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus ought to get. Office in the church is not a matter of popularity, and it's not a matter of success in worldly terms. And yet, repeatedly in my life, I have seen in congregations that I've been part of and congregations that I've known of, the fact that men are set apart for office because they are popular. Men are set apart for office because they have been successful in worldly terms. We find those who are making the big bucks, the successful businessmen who can contribute a lot to the church, or the doctor, or the lawyer, or what have you, or somebody that's respected in secular terms. And we say, well, they should be our elders. Well, there might be some kind of a correlation between the ability of a man to get ahead in this world financially and to gain respect in his own field and his having gifts and dedication within the church. I don't deny any connection there, but what I'm saying is that's not a qualification for office. You notice it doesn't say anything here about the man showing how much money he makes 
No, it says the opposite. He shouldn't be worried about making a lot of money. It doesn't talk about a man here who's just like, just trying to kowtow to people for his popularity. It talks about somebody who has discipline, someone who is dedicated to the Lord, who has proven moral qualities. It really bothers me that we have, not only in seminaries, but also denominations, have training centers and screening centers for people to become missionaries or ministers. And the criteria being used in these centers does not go to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, but goes rather to the sorts of things that secular psychology tells us about people who are able to get along with others or to what the church growth movement tells us about people who will be able to get a lot of people into the church. The way in which officers are chosen in churches and the way in which professional institutions try to train people to become ministers or officers in the church is not geared to the scriptures. Christ cares about the management of his church and he's given us some instructions and we must pay attention. That's one lesson we learn here, but a second of course, is that there's a call here to the current as well as the prospective leaders in our own congregation. If you presently have office in this congregation, this sermon is for you. You should be looking at this not as something as, oh yeah, well, I remember way back when when I had to pass those tests. You should be looking at this and saying, is this true of my life right now? Is that the kind of person I am? Is that the kind of person I'm growing into being? These are the sorts of things which you are obligated men of God to read repeatedly, to pray about repeatedly, to strive after repeatedly. The offices of our congregation should, especially in this month of our yearly congregational meeting, be considering their commitment to their task, their concern for the ministry. How much of your time is given to caring about the kind of leader you are? whether you manifest these qualities, whether you exercise your gifts, whether you're present at our meetings when we have to take care of things, whether you follow through when assignments are given to you, whether you do things at the last minute because you're in a hurry or whether you do things well with consideration because you're laboring for the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. You should be examining your lives and examining your commitment to your tasks and your concern for the ministry of this congregation. And of course, after reading a list like this, um, I almost told you at the beginning of this morning's sermon that I apologize for preaching it because I'm not worthy to preach it. I know that. All of us who are officers when we read this must humble ourselves in faith and dependence upon the spirit of Jesus Christ. We don't bring any natural merit or worth, any great excelling in terms of these qualities. And we have to be humble about that. And if we're going to be humble about it, say, how are we going to minister? But this is also, and I think thirdly, a challenge to the congregation, to the members of the church. First, that you would consider who would lead you. Do not choose people just because it seems the thing to do. You ought to be looking at these qualities and looking at the people who are set before you because once you choose someone to lead you, what you're saying is, I will vow submission to this person. I trust this person. For the oversight of my spiritual life and well-being, I trust this person when he would come to me to help me, he'll show compassion. When he would come to me to correct me, his testimony would be believable. That I wouldn't say... 
uh, well, you know, you've got your opinion, I have mine. It should be the kind of individual you say, well, if he says that I need to be corrected, I'd better think about that because I have great respect for this person. He has evident Christian qualities. Consider carefully who would lead you so that you may submit to them. Consider the task and requirements of their work as well so that you may support them. I think that it is sinful on our part to set people apart for the ministry and then having gone through an ordination or an installation service and then to say, okay, go to it. And then we kind of sit back and we kind of watch. Say, well, let's see how they do. See how they run this race. Like we're spectators up there in the stands watching uh, thoroughbred horses run the track. That isn't what ordination and installation is all about. It's a lot more akin to going out and huddling around the quarterback and saying, okay, what do we do now? When we set a person aside for office, when we consecrate them to this task, what we're saying is, and we will follow you. We will support you in this work. What you do, we will say. Your correction, we will heed. You need to pray for the sanctification and growth of your leaders. I mean, if you read this list, even though you may not be up for office, even though you may not be an officer, you certainly see in this list the kinds of difficulty morally personally, spiritually, that are on those that would be your leaders. And you ought to love them and pray for them and pray repeatedly for them, that they grow in the Lord and they'd be strong in such qualities. I need your prayers, that I be a more gentle person, that I be a more compassionate person. I need your prayers to be a good father. The officers of our church need that kind of support. Not only that you might love and, and submit to them because you are praying, but that God might honor your prayers and sanctify their lives and give you better leaders. Pray for them. And praise the Lord Jesus Christ that he hasn't left you to be, left, uh, to be led by wolves and by people who are selfish and who are insensitive to your needs, who are theologically inaccurate and may lead you the path to hell. Praise God that he has ordained in his church leaders of such a quality for you. Though they fall short of it, this is what they strive for. This is what generally characterizes them. And what a difference it would make. What if you were left to a different kind of individual? Praise God that, his Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ cares enough to equip the church for the ministry. And of course, I think you ought to emulate the faith and the faithfulness of your elders and your deacons. Now, I know that's a hard thing for the elders and deacons to hear, but the Bible speaks that way. We are to set an example of faith. So that when people look to us, even if they didn't hear the word of God, they would see it in our lives, and they could emulate that. And though you may not be aspiring to office at this particular time, these are Christian qualities of a very high order, and all Christians ought to be striving for them. So this sermon's for you, too. I already told you I'm not sure that I'm worthy. I know that I'm not worthy to preach this sermon because I don't live up to these things. We have uh, three individuals in our congregation this morning who may be wondering whether they want to go through um, uh, being examined by the congregation, having their lives inspected, and to serve in this congregation. When you see these qualities, it tends to humble you, perhaps frighten you. You kind of jump back from it. What, how can any of us live up to these things? 
And that's why I had us read Isaiah, the sixth chapter, this morning. Because I think we have an answer to our question. And we see why it is that anyone would ever answer that facetious ad that I gave you about showing up to serve in the way that I described and with the qualities that are demanded and yet falling so short of that. Isaiah had the privilege of being brought by means of vision into the very throne room of God. And Isaiah speaks of the wonderment of that, how he steps back and he sees the Lord upon his throne, Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty, and how the train of his robe fills the temple. What a magnificent sight it was. He sees the glory of God lifted up and he hears the seraphim singing of the holiness of God and his glory day and night. And so compelling is their song that the doorpost of the temple shake and the room is filled with smoke. And Isaiah wants to serve the Lord. He wants to be a prophet of God. He wants to be an officer in, among God's people. But the first thing that he says when he contemplates the glory of God is, woe is me. How can I possibly serve you, Lord? I'm undone. I'm morally unfit. Because he has unclean lips. You notice how all the focus of sin there is upon the mouth in this passage. That in itself is worthy of a lesson another time. But Isaiah says, I have unclean lips and I live in the midst of people with unclean lips. How can I can't even sing the glory of God. I can't even join the seraphim in singing of the holiness of God because my mouth is unfit and I am unclean and woe is me, I am undone. You notice what impels Isaiah to serve is the glory of God. And what makes him hesitate in that service is his own lack of purity. And God does a wonderful thing. He sends an angel with tongs, with a coal from the fire of the altar. The altar, of course, where sacrifice must be made for sin. And with that coal, as it were in this vision, Isaiah's lips are touched. And his sins are forgiven. And he's purified. And knowing the salvation of God, that is unfit as he is, yet God graciously makes provision for his service. When Isaiah then hears, who will go for us? Isaiah's response is not now, I'm unworthy. But he stands up and he says, Lord, I'm here. Use me. And for the officers of the church, and for all who are members, we need to hear that too that we know that it's the glory of God that makes us want to come to church. It's the glory of God that makes us want to serve in his kingdom. The glory of God that makes us want to love one another and, and to minister to one another. And yet we know we're all unfit for that. Officers and members alike, because we have unclean lips. Our lives fall so short of the glory of God, which the seraphim sing of day and night. And we need for God's gracious provision to touch us perhaps you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning at all. And you would be terrified to come into the very presence of God because you know that his glory and his holiness would undo you. You need to submit to the purifying work of the Savior Jesus Christ to let him touch you 
with the tongs of the fire of the altar, that his sacrificial death would be your sufficiency, that his sacrificial death would take care of the justice of God and turn aside the just judgment of God and his wrath away from your sin, that you might stand in his presence now purified and clean for the sake of Christ's righteousness. Perhaps you've been a Christian or professing Christian for some time, but you really haven't cared to serve others. You've wished people would serve you. Your mentality has been entirely, what can I get out of this arrangement from God and from God's people? You need to, in the cleanness that Jesus gives, in the purification and new life that he grants you, to want to stand up and say, God, use me to serve others. Perhaps you're an officer in this congregation. Perhaps you're a prospective officer, a candidate to be an officer in this congregation. And you have listened to the sermon and you've wondered how you're going to be able to serve with all honesty in the way that God has bid you to serve. Remember the experience of Isaiah. Remember your salvation and renew those glorious truths in your life. Humble yourself before God. Trust in his cleansing, his provision. And then with confidence, stand up. And when you hear God saying, who will go? Who will minister? Who will serve me? Make yourself available and say, God, here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Lord, we come into your holy presence this morning, even as Isaiah did, and confess that we are undone. We truly, from the heart, say, Woe unto us for our sin, for our impurity, for our unlovableness, for our falling short of your glory. We ask you to show mercy and grace to us. We ask you to cleanse us by the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to increase our faith in him, that as we examine ourselves, we would end up looking to him for provision, looking to him for righteousness, looking to him for new life, looking to him to be equipped to live before you, looking to him to minister in his name and for the sake of his kingdom and to his people. We come to you and we ask that our sins would be atoned by Jesus Christ. We ask that you would equip us and give us confidence in our Savior, who is glorious above all, who truly is above reproach, who has shown the gentleness and the purity that you require of us all, and especially those who would serve in your church. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would forgive us that so much of what we are talking about is talk that is heard from our mouths but not seen in our lives. And we pray that you would change us and put us into your service, that you would give us hearts that are willing to say as Isaiah did, in gratitude for our salvation and for your work among us, Lord, send us, make use of us, glorify yourself, through our efforts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.